Thanks for tuning in to WNL After Class. I'm your host, Ruth Candler. Today I'm visiting with Tom Camden, Head of Special Collections and Archives at Washington and Lee. We are so very fortunate that we caught him, for he is only on campus for one more week before he retires. Tom's story is an interesting one. He grew up in Rockbridge County and is also a 1976 graduate of WNL. While on campus, he majored in religion with an emphasis on Eastern thought and later explored the world of library and information science, earning his master's degree from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Tom's professional journey led him from the chilly winters of New England as curator of the New Hampshire Historical Society, all the way down to the warmth of the South where he became director of special collections at the University of Georgia. But as fate would have it, his heart called him back to his beloved state of Virginia, where he worked at the esteemed Marshall Museum and Library on the VMI campus. Tom then moved east and became the director of special collections at the Library of Virginia, where he stayed for 12 years. For the past decade, Tom has nurtured the invaluable treasures of WNL Special Collections and Archives, preserving history and illuminating our understanding of the past. But all good things must come to an end, and next week, Tom retires. He'll be hanging up his treasure hunting hat, ready to embark on the next chapter of his life. Enjoy listening as we take one more walk through Special Collections and the Vault with Tom Camden. Tom, welcome to WNL After Class. Thank you. Tom, you grew up on a farm in Rockbridge County, and from what I understand, you weren't planning to stay in the area after high school. Um, you received a full scholarship to WNL that you said you could not pass up. Would you share what it was like growing up in this area and how that contrasted with your time in college? Absolutely, it was, it was quite a, a, a shift for me to, to come to Washington Lee. Growing up in Rockbridge County, uh, my family's been here since 1740, wow. so I'm deeply rooted. And of course, at 18 years old, you really want to fly away. Uh, you want to, if you have an opportunity to go to college, and I knew I was going to do that, uh, I, I really wanted to go. I wanted to fly. My mother had a different idea. My family is large, and uh, uh, my father died when I was five, so um, my mother was a strong influence on my, uh, on my entire life. And so when Washington Lee made this, uh, asked me um, if I wanted to accept this full scholarship, I said, no, <laughs> I don't want to go to Washington. <laughs> and your Lee. mother said? And my mother said, you will accept that. Uh, I cannot let you turn down that kind of opportunity. Now, having grown up here, you know, I know the area very well. My family, my family are what is in this area called land poor. They owned, they owned at various points vast uh, acreage of uh, property, but they were not educated people. I'm the first in my family to get a college degree, much less advanced degrees. Uh, my mother, you know, has an, had an eighth grade education. My father, we never talked about it because I didn't know him very well, but I, I've come to realize in recent, recent years that he, he may have been illiterate, and I'm not sure about that. I don't, I don't have anybody to ask about that at this point. So an education was something that was uh, encouraged by my family, but um, in order to take care of land, you don't necessarily need to hold multiple degrees. Uh, it, was, it was a bit of a luxury, but my mother encouraged it. 
And everyone at the Natural Bridge High School where I went to school, uh, there were lots of people who apparently saw potential in this country boy who was most happy on the on Buffalo Creek or putting up hay in the summer or, or you know, hiking all over the place. So I got lots of encouragement and uh, I, there was never any question that I would be college bound. Coming to Washington Lee was a, a bit of a game changer for me. Uh, I'm very grateful to the school for offering me that fellowship. It was not easy. If you are a local boy, particularly if you're a county boy, uh, and at that point it was all boys, there were no women at this school, it was pretty quickly noted that you were a townie and you, and you carried that sort of moniker for the rest of your career. I was somewhat resentful of that, and, but actually it, it, it sort of sparked me to be um, even, even sort of stronger and more unique than I, than I was when I came to school here. The first year was not easy. You want to be accepted. You want to be, feel like you're part of a group. Uh, you want to have that college experience. Uh, but I was not interested in the fraternity system. I was not interested in the social scene. And so it was a bit, it was a bit uh, difficult. And there was a little bit of an estrangement. Pretty quickly recognizing the academic opportunities, I realized that my worldview was about to change radically, and it did. And that, that is what brought me to this point. That incredible, and I call, I call it today, I call it enlightenment. And that's a, that's a really prissy sort of term to, to, to talk about somebody being 19 years old and enlightened. But I, I do reckon it, or, or call it, in a form of enlightenment. My worldview went from this very narrow country, farm boy attitude to something very, very broad. And, and it was all through the academic opportunities and the kind of exposure I got in the classroom here. At WNL, you majored in Eastern thought, and you had considered pursuing a doctorate in religion at Princeton. And then you took some time away from uh, education. Tell us about what that time was like, and then what made you decide to get your master's. I spent five years here because I was having so much fun and it had this wonderful fellowship. So I was allowed to stay an extra year and pursue minors in art history with Pam Simpson and, and a minor in art, art sociology, anthropology. And all those things contributed to that expanding sort of worldview, I call it. My mentor here, my major professor, Dr. Mana Rogers, said to me, I think you should, uh, you should pursue a graduate degree and perhaps teach, perhaps come back at some point and, and do what I'm doing. So he planted and that seed. He did, and I adored him, and I, I wasn't sure I wanted to be like Dr. Mana Rogers, but I wanted to do what he was doing. And so uh, I, I did. I applied to Princeton, uh, the theological seminary, and, um, but realized um, that the, the prospect of three more years of graduate work was sort of daunting. And so I, I turned that down, and I ended up at the Marshall uh, library as a research assistant, which is, uh, which means I'm, I was a gopher and, you know, I was paid, you know, about a dollar more an hour than the janitor. But it was an extraordinary experience because that's where, that's where my shift in thinking, my career shift was, was made. That's where the first day on the job, I was given a box of materials, um, uh, to, to organize. And it was a 
box of materials created by a man named Frank McCarthy, who uh, was an aide-de-camp to George Marshall during World War II, but's better known as the producer of the movie Patton. He gave us the movie, the box of movie materials, or, or materials that were used in the writing of the script, including the original script, and that and photographs and diaries and letters from between Beatrice Patton and George Patton, her husband. And so I remember thinking, this is, this is real history. This is raw history. I'd never been exposed to it before. Having grown up here in this, in this extraordinarily bucolic little valley where history is all around you, you sort of take it for granted. But to, but to be holding raw history in your hands is a bit of a revelation. So I remember thinking, well, this is going to be an interesting experience for me. I'm, I'm, I'm immersing myself in raw history. And then at the bottom of that box, there was an object that was wrapped in a towel. And I remember thinking, this is very odd. And I unwrapped it, and it was, and it was the Oscar, the, the, the original, the golden statuette that, he, that was won for best producer, director, one of the, whatever. Well, not many McCarthy. people can say that they've held an Oscar in their hands. No, they cannot. And so here I am, I'm fresh out of Washington Lee, and I'm holding it, and I, and I, remember, th I remember saying and thinking that that was sort of my Paul on the road to Damascus experience. That's that religious sort of conversion where Paul was struck by lightning and, and forever changed. And I sort of felt like that. And I remember saying much later, telling that story and saying, you know, that that day is when it all became clear to me that that's where I was going to be going the rest of my life, and I never looked back. And to this day, I've not looked back. That's so true with, with a lot of our Lifelong Learning Program participants over the years, that you have allowed them to hold history in their hands and make such a difference. It's impactful. So let's 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 come back to WNL. Okay. Uh, and in 2013, you did come back to WNL in special collections. What exactly is special collections? Well, it's special collections here is is it's not intended to be a great big secret. It has not always been acknowledged for the richness of its of uh, the holdings. As I have aged in my career, I'm a very quick to admit that I'm a shameless promoter. So I, I believe very strongly that a collection uh, of riches isn't worth a flip if you do not share it uh, with either the people who are most vested in it or the constituents. And in this instance, the students, the faculty, the community. So I accepted this position not really knowing what was here uh, because there was no special collections when I was a student here. There, there, uh, there was collection of materials, but it wasn't an organized collection in a separate department. So I came here with some trepidation because I left an extraordinary position in Richmond as, as caretaker or custodian or steward of the, of the state of Virginia's treasures. And you can imagine Virginia is, in, there's a reason why it's called the mother of presidents. And I was responsible for some extraordinary collections owned by the Commonwealth. But when my alma mater gave me the opportunity to come back, I said, yes, I think so. <laughs> and so, but I remember thinking, what have I done? I've left a very high profile position, exciting to come to somewhat unknown. I knew I had a wonderful group of people to work with, 
The staff here is extraordinary. They're an extraordinarily good team. But I didn't know really about the collections. But then a week after I came back here, I called my colleagues in Richmond and they were very excited to hear from me and they said, oh, you're, you're calling because you're coming back. Please tell us you're coming <laughs> back. And I said, I'm calling you to tell you that I won the lottery. And I think I can say 10 years later, as I'm one week away from uh, retiring, that I, I think that's still true. I know that's still true. We're still finding incredible treasures, or we're rediscovering incredible treasures. So yes, I think that, so Special Collections is an, an unusual collection of materials. It's a teaching lab. I think there has to be a very clear distinction made here between the, the museum's collections and the, and the Special Collections. Special Collections materials are teaching tools. Some of them are museum quality. As, we'll, as I will talk about when we go in the vault. But they, everything we have is used in the curriculum or the classroom or has the potential to be used. Nothing is put behind a case where you can look at it, but you cannot get close to it. If you had to look through the collections and think of, um, you know, you mentioned them as, as teaching tools. If you could pull out one item that you feel it was a, a wow item, as a teaching tool, what would it be? It would it would probably be the oldest piece in the collection, which is the which is the Sumerian Sumerian clay tablet, which is an account book that was done in 2030 BC and done in the city of Ur of the Chaldees, birthplace of Abraham. When you, when you tell that story about that particular piece, it's an account book, right? I've used it in business classes. I've talked about it in Phoenix, Arizona at the American Accounting Association meetings. It, it is not only a wow, it's 4,000 years old, but it is a teaching tool. You can do so much with it. And it's a tiny little object, but there's absolutely no limit to what you can do to use that in in a te for teaching moments. In a variety you, of areas and, too, and you, right? Yeah. A variety of areas, cross-disciplinary and cross-generational. Children are fascinated by this piece. You can talk about the composition of it. You can talk about the, the content of it, um, the historical significance. People oftentimes will smile or they will weep or they will get emotional or they will be speechless to be in the presence of something that could have been created during the time of Abraham. Those are the kinds of things you normally would see behind cases or tucked away somewhere out of sight where you can't get to it. This, these are teaching tools. We handle it with reverence, but it's still a teaching tool. Do you know where it came from? It came from an alum, mm. as, most, as did most of the treasures in the vault. They are gifts of our incredible alumni. I've heard you describe your approach in special collections as a public service model. What do you mean by that? Well, public service to me is what is the hallmark, should be the hallmark of, of librarianship. It's changing somewhat. Uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, you're very lucky these days to have a human, human contact anywhere you go, uh, whether it's libraries or not. But we still do one-on-one -on -one public service. We offer a public service 
function here. And that's the model that we have built our reputation on. People understand that they can come here and they can talk to one of my staff or to me and they can get help. But public service is really important. And in particularly when you are responsible for unusual materials, uh, you can catalog them. You can go onto the catalog and find the description of the piece. But, and I think it's even more important now that we are so digital oriented and that most of our students are born digital. We are, we are so far removed from the original that when our students and when my constituents and my patrons come into contact with original pieces, it is revelatory for them. It's, you can almost see the scales flying off their eyes. I, I know I'm using a lot of religious things here, but that's my background. <laughs> you, you, it, you can see the expression change when they realize this is the original. This is not a surrogate. This is not virtual reality. This is the real thing. And so I have made, made it a point to emphasize over and over that really nothing can replicate the power of the original. Yeah, I've, I've had the privilege of uh, standing in front of an audience that you're presenting to uh, numerous times through our alumni college programs and seeing the faces of, of those that you are mentioning. So you, you've talked about, you know, kind of the, the public service that you do through special collections. There's such a, a rich history in Rockbridge County that interfaces with the most profound moments in American history, uh, and that Special Collections house several treasures in that regard. How do those documents and other items in our collection benefit the local community? I, I, I think it's also very important to note, and, and I've, done, I've said this many times, and, and I say this partially because I am a native, uh, a townie, if you will, <laughs> um, I think that uh, it's, you, we cannot deny that the history of this community and the history of this school have been intertwined from the beginning. I think oftentimes we like to think that uh, we're over on the hill here, we're sort of uh, uh, operate in our own uh, world, our own little ivory tower, uh, but I, that, I cannot, the history doesn't prove that. The history of this community is, is absolutely intertwined with the history of this school and no action on the part of this institution or on the part of the community, they, they have an impact whether you want to acknowledge it or not. And so I remember this, this came to the forefront loud and clear when Will Dudley asked me to be on the university's commission to look at the the history of African Americans here at Washington and Lee. And uh, I remember saying, I'm not sure I can be objective enough because I am an alum, I'm a native, my roots go deep, I'm keeper of the documentary heritage. That is either a triple whammy <laughs> or a major asset. And uh, I think the assumption was made uh, that indeed it would be an asset, that perspective on on this relationship between the community. So I'm very much interested in the community having access to the materials that are here as well. It's an academic collection. The primary focus 
of anything we do is, has got to be our, our own students and our faculty, but the community is also deeply involved. The community loves this place. So we, we've talked about special collections and archives uh, of what it looks like today. What do you foresee on the horizon in terms of what's happening in the field in the near future? That's a very good question. I, one of the things that I'm very aware of and have been always is, and I came here with this sort of mantra of eliminating barriers to access, both perceived and real. Special collections have had this for years, have had this uh, sort of reputation of being elite and off limits and you know, you know, you're not allowed in there unless you have some special secret password. And I'm a keen observer of all that and realize that we, we have to eliminate that. But also one of the things that we have got to, that I have struggled with in the last year or so, is access now is through the digital medium. I mean, the medium is changing. It is wonderful to be able to share original materials and presentations in classrooms on site. But being able to share your uh, resource materials, whether they are uh, dry as dirt research materials are exciting, you know, treasures. Uh, you need to have that digital. You need to have that digital capacity. And we're doing that. We're doing it. We were doing it on demand for a while. And now we are looking at collections and specifically targeting collections that would be heavily used or could be heavily used. And that has allowed us to expand uh, staffing. We've been able to acquire materials, you know, more, more equipment. It's changing rapidly. And also in terms of our own record keeping, the university's own records no longer are coming to us in bankers boxes, you know, from the president's office or from the dean's office. They're coming on thumb drives. And, and how do you deal when uh, an administrator says to me, uh, Tom, uh, all of my records are in the cloud. I say, what cloud? I can't see that cloud. What, if, what happens if that cloud burst? I, I, I am well aware that that has changed so rapidly and I have not kept up with it, but I have people on staff who know that and who work with it every day. And so that's dramatic. That's a dramatic exciting shift. Exciting, too. It is exciting. Yeah. It is exciting. Tom, would it be possible to take a walk through the vault and see some of your treasures? Yes. Yes, wow. it would. All right, let's go. Okay, so Tom, this is this is not not quite what I expected. No, it, 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 I hear that often. I hear it from students, I hear it from faculty, I hear it from, from just community. It, it's a bit of a rogues gallery. We have, we have materials hanging on the walls, we have books, we have carts loaded with materials that are in use. Well, and, uh, and, and files we and have files. Flat files. What flat, are the flat maps? Flat files are maps. Um, they might be historic photographs. They, they are, uh, there might be oversized documents, skin documents. Uh, that won't fit into regular boxes. And what are all the photographs and and prints? There's something from Washington College up there. Yes, there's there's a whole there's a it runs the gamut. Uh, materials come to us often framed, and we traditionally will unframe them. But then, oftentimes we'll just leave them framed because it's easier just to store them that way. Uh, but if you can imagine the history of the school. We have we have framed broadsides that are limited numbered uh, broadsides poetry. We have sketches, we have photographs, we have actual paintings, we have portraits of uh, very um, 
sour-looking people. <laughs> <laughs> serious. 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 I'm not sure but I'd yes. call them sour. Well, okay, I would so say, you know, sort of sour, but uh, well, serious maybe people. A couple. But, and they're vintage portraits. Oftentimes, they're pieces that come in with collections, and yeah. in, in with family collections, and their family members, sometimes they're not even identified. It's a, what is W&L Ambulance Section 534? That's the, that's the um, it was an incredible group of, of uh, Washington Lee students who uh, became an ambulance corps in the in uh, World War One. Wow! Well, is that is that framed money? It is. That's fr is those are framed uh, uh, Confederate <laughs> Confederate bonds that are very rare. Interesting. So, so for our listeners, at the very top, it says Confederate States of America, and it looks and I can't read. Is that a? It says loan. Loan. Okay. So those are okay. bonds. Wow. Uh, and they're they were at the time they were worth the. Uh, the paper they were printed on. Now they're quite rare. Um, oh, that's fascinating. And what is what is the the collection? So, so right here, as you come into the vault, is this is this in, incredible collection of Southern fiction, and it's it's the Roger Mudd collection. Roger Mudd, class of 1950. Roger collected first editions of Southern authors, not only first editions, but all in book jackets and mint, almost mint condition. In here, you'll find the. The mo one of the most famous ones, which is um, To Kill a Mockingbird, which is um, Harper Lee's first edition. Wow. So, so this, this collection came, Roger, class of 1950, um, he offered us this collection and we thought it would be a good showpiece collection, which is exactly how it's been kept. We've kept it together. We haven't integrated it into the rest of the collection. So it is a, as you come in, it's, it's very, very fitting that you see Roger's uh, Southern first editions. And we talked about how you use these materials. How have you used this uh, collection, his Roger collection, Mudd's collection? His collection of, of first editions is, is largely a collection that's used in exhi for exhibition purposes. Okay. Because many of these, you, you, we, you can find the text in, in the general collection, you'll find You'll find a copy of many of these books in, that you can check out, but not the, necessarily a first edition. These are first; these are all first <laughs> editions and rare because of that. Uh, so, and in it, such it's, great it's shape. important to keep it together. He was a close friend of, of Eudora Welty, who is a famous uh, Southern novelist, and so his collection. This collection also includes some some interviews with her, some some correspondence, some photographs, really f beautiful photographs, which makes it even more rare. Is it possible to see the tablet that you... Yes, yes it is. The tablet that we talked about. That we talked about earlier. Uh, in so we, so in, in this vault, we, so the vault is, is vast. It's shelf after shelf of, of books and, and uh, documents. But we also have what we call uh, secure files. So the secure files are actually files within that it's like a vault within a vault. This is where the most important pieces are housed. And so oftentimes when I have a small group in here, I will say, okay, let me, let me show you the rarest of the rare. And in here are the pieces that are often the rarest pieces. They're also the pieces that have been most often used in the classes and presentations. They're also the pieces that I've had restored. I have spent 10 years identifying and restoring and stabilizing pieces that I know are going to be constantly used so that, so that they can continue to be used. And so here is the tablet. 
and I had a special little linen box made for the Sumerian clay tablet circa 2030 BC. Now, and I'm all about presentation. I mean, I, I mean, it is any, a beautiful box. Anybody, yeah. any of the alums, anybody will say, Tom, you're all, you're just, just a, you know, you're yeah, circus you sideshow, you're sort of a showman. But, you know, here you have this special little custom made box, and it's all about the presentation. And so you, and you have this little box within a box, and there you have that little clay tablet nestling into its own little gorgeous linen enclosure. It's important. I mean, if you're going to do, if you're going to constantly be showing your treasures, you need to do it right. Yeah. And you need to do well, it. Well, and it's protective, too. And, of course, everything has been restored and paid for by our wonderful alums. Um, shameless in that regard as well. But in here are, as you would imagine, so, in, it, what, what, so why does this, why do you have this vault within a vault? Well, in here you have George Washington, a piece from George Washington's library with his signature. You have a book with Martha Washington's signature on it. You, we have an early copy of Aesop's Fables. We have Thomas Jefferson's Manual of Parliamentary Practice with his handwritten notes in it, which is a, a piece that is beyond, in terms of value, is probably one of the rarest pieces in existence. Uh, we have a first edition of Darwin's On the Origin of Species in here. Wow. Which, which is, uh, which is one of those pieces that we have acquired many, many years ago, and uh, the value of that is is phenomenal because of the controversy of that piece. We have a true first edition. We have books printed before Gutenberg, before the printing press. Books that are called Incanabula. They are beautiful skin pieces, and I share them often. And I. And I will share these pieces with my classes and students because this, this is 1497. It's nothing's been done to it. It's an original piece that the binding to the, to the un, uneducated eye or to someone who doesn't know bindings, they look at this and they go, this looks like the Dickens, Tom. It looks terrible. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. It's because it is a survivor and it's a... It's is that, a, is that a, um, a leather strap? That's a, that's a, it's a sheepskin overboard, beach board, and this would be a leather strap okay. that would have held wow. it together because they have a tendency to, to warp. Let's move on to the pieces that you had. And I, I'm sorry, I got, got totally distracted by... I just wanted to see the tablet. Let's talk, while we're here, let's talk about the the Roman coins. So it's, it's sort of a bit unusual to have a collection like this uh, in this little t beautiful little antique cabinet. Oftentimes you get calls, as I did regarding this collection, from an alum who said, I'm, I'm working on my estate planning. I have something I think the school might want. Can you come see me? I'm in Williamsburg. I drove down to see him. He was 100 years old, class of 1938. Um, he had one thing, and it was this cabinet on the, on the table in his assisted living place. And I opened the cabinet, and it's, a, it's an entire cabinet full of Roman coins, many of which were done around the time of the birth of Christ. A hundred years old, he's in a wheelchair, he'd had a stroke, but he said to me, what do you think? And I said, I think Washington Lee would love this collection. And uh, he said, good, good, take it. And so I brought it back here. I've used it in so many ways, over and over and over in classes. This is, a, this is in many ways a museum collection, but it is a teaching collection. I used it in the spring term. I had a group of students 
um, who were looking at the Roman emperors and there was a Latin class. It was a large class of 20 students or so and I broke them into small groups and I said, you have spent the first three weeks of your spring term looking at slides or looking at uh, uh, PowerPoint slides of, of the Roman emperors. Now, I want, I'm going to break you into groups of three or four, and each of you gets a drawer full of original coins. Here's your worksheet. Here's what we want you to, um, to tell us about the coins. And so they spent a couple of hours being able to pick these up, look at them. They had so them in their hands. They had them in their hands. They were able, and they, of course, doing their research on their laptops. And uh, it was a phenomenal experience for them. It was going from a classroom situation where they're looking at slides and virtual reality to looking at originals. And so, touching. And touching. And, yeah, 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 that's incredible. I mean, this is an unusual uh, teaching tool, but it's still a teaching tool. These are not off limits to our students. Uh, I mean, Washington Lee can hold its own with some of the larger institutions in terms of its, of its special treasures. Uh, and that is largely due to the generosity of the alumni. Not only the generosity, but the diverse collections that the alumni will come to me and say, I've been collecting thus and such for years. And it's in, in your flabbergasted, you go, why? But then you go, yes, we, we were interested in, in adding that. Doesn't it go back to the, the joy of a liberal arts education I think when you are exposed to absolutely. so many different things? And, and speaking of donors, here is, in, in 1870, a man named W.W. W. Corcoran, the same man who, whose name was on the Corcoran Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., donated to this school in 1870 over 3,000 volumes of a collection that he had acquired at auction of early classics. When I say early classics, I mean um, 16th century and some 15th century classics bound in skin of, of Plato, um, you know, Cicero, uh, all of the major classic authors. Those were, were given in 1870. They're noted in the trustees' records as, as having received that gift. And um, they were given in honor of his friend Robert E. Lee. Lee had, wow. just, Lee had just died. And so they had been here since 1870. Now, when I came 10 years ago, I remember saying to some of my colleagues in the, in the classics department, did you know we have these? Have you ever been over here? No, we didn't know. Well, let me tell you, it's been one of the most incredibly heavily used collections since I've been here. And it's one that I'm so excited about. I'm constantly making new discoveries with some of these pieces because you can use them for the study of the classics, but you can also use them for study of early book binding. We do book binding classes here or, or book arts classes. You can use them in so many ways. This is one of the collections that I'm most excited about. And you can also, because you have so many of these pieces, through over 3,000 pieces, one of the ways I, I, I will start just a regular presentation, doesn't matter if it's a business class or whatever, I will, the students, I will say to them, I'm going to pass around two books for you to look at. I want you to look at them. I want you to hold them. I want you to stroke them. I want you to love them because this one is 1590, this one is 1606. Oh my gosh. And I want you to look at the book. I want you to look at the binding. I want you to look at the marginalia. I want you to look at all the things because most of those students have never been in the presence of, of a piece this old. And many of them don't have access to books 
you know, like this at all, because they really are, they really are most of their time spent, uh, you know, on their devices. And so it's incredibly revelatory. I've had students come to me almost in tears saying, I never knew we'd had this opportunity. And, and these are skin volumes, they're durable. This is 1590 and it's still beautiful. I said, you're not gonna hurt these pieces because you just, you know, and I said, as a matter of fact, skin is so durable. I don't care if you had French fries for lunch. Oh, I don't gosh. care if you, I, you know, just give this a little love. I mean, a little oil is not gonna hurt it. And you get these wonderful, you got the margin, oh, marginalia and you get all kinds of, I said, I want you to look at the piece. I want you to look at the physical piece. It's Latin, I don't expect you to read it, but I want you to look at the piece. And they will oftentimes smell. All right, I have to smell. Smell the book because there's, an, there's an, yeah. just a unique smell to old books and then they, they will giggle and say, oh. <laughs> and one day I had a young man who said, Mr. Kemden, it smells like uh, potato chips. And I said, well, yes, because you had potato chips for lunch <laughs> on your hands. What are you talking about? What are you going to show us next? Well, I, could, I think we can look at most anything. The documents, one of the things we probably ought to talk a moment about is the, is the collection of the university's own history. That's, the history of this school is phenomenal. And I've said in the past, the history of the school mirrors the history of the nation. This school founded in 1749. This school was witness to the revolution the War of 1812, World War I, the, the War, the Civil War, World War I, World War II, Vietnam. The history of this school mirrors the history of the nation. And so we have here, in all this compact shelving, which allows us to grow, we have the history, early history of the school. Here's where this became central for our, our, our commission work. For the first time ever, there was a concentrated deep dive into the history of, of African Americans on this campus, the ownership of enslaved people by the institution. This is part of the history that, that has been known, but has never necessarily been acknowledged or looked at very carefully. That's one of the things that Lynn Rainville and her, her uh, crew and her students are, are, will be doing, have been doing, and will continue to do well into the future. It's all here. It's all here. It's safe, and, it, and, it's, and it's beautiful, because that's part of the history. It's not all pretty. Whoever led us to believe that history was pretty was, was really leading us down the primrose path, because it's not pretty. Some of the history is not pretty. But it's here, and you have to look at it in order to understand the, 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 where this school has been and where it's going. So during the pandemic, alumni engagement did a, a program that showcased some of the things that were in the vault, and we have videos. I'd like to access those maybe and share those in our show notes so that our alumni can take a deeper dive into the vault. I think that's a, a wonderful idea. I remember when, that was, when I was asked to do that, I said to the alumni, to Bo Dudley, who was alumni director at the time, I said, Bo, I, I don't know if I can do this. I'm not sure how, how this is going to work. I'm used to seeing my audience. I don't know how to do this on Zoom. I don't even like the word Zoom. And he, <laughs> they said, but everybody was so desperate then to try to connect. I said, I will do 
I will do the best I can. And I remember sitting down in my office with a Zoom camera and having some things on my desk. And I started talking and then I, I just forgot that I was not talking to a group of people. And uh, we just carried on and, and it was incredible. And I remember as soon as it was over, it was about an hour, there was a lot of, of sort of noise and chatter out in the reading room, the people who were helping me. And I remember thinking, oh no, wonder what's, what, I've, what I've done, what, I've, what did I say that's so hysterical? And the, they were all cheering because there, the, there were 400 people on that Zoom call. And I remember thinking, for the first time realizing that Zoom allowed two things. It allowed the numbers to be as large as we wanted them to be, and it also the geographical distribution. There was an alum from, yeah. from, um, from Bahrain who zoomed in, yeah. and, and immediately chat rooms yeah. opens up and they're just like flying chats, or the comments asking are question. flying in and yeah, asking it, questions and saying, and then I got people emailing saying, you need to do this once a week. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh, how can I do this once a week? Yeah. I, have, I have work to do. Yeah, that was the silver lining of the pandemic. Well, it, it was, really? and I, I, I wasn't sure it was going to work because I was so wedded to the fact that I had to be in front of my audience and then I had to be, have the originals. Uh, but I remember saying, you, you, once the pandemic lifts, you've got to come here and see these things in reality because what you can looking at them on a zoom call it is not going yeah. to you know, not, not going to cut it no it's it's very different to be here in person thanks again tom well tom thank you so much for taking us through the vault and letting us witness firsthand this incredible collection you're we welcome call, we call special collections you're welcome you're welcome well, tom i have to be honest with you when I first heard you talk about the vault. I envisioned dark quarters and dark walls and dim lighting and and stacks and stacks of dusty books. But but it, it looks like a library collection. It is a library collection, <laughs> and that that the word vault is is a is a purposeful misnomer. Really, uh, I think people assume it's a you know steel lined vault. Oh, it's you know, so like mysterious. A like a bank vault, whatever. And I use that word just to just to sort of build up to it. But uh, the truth of the matter is, it's, I often refer to it as Alibaba's cave. I uh, sometimes <laughs> talk about grandma's attic because it it's a working vault, so it's not, uh, it's not all neat and orderly. Uh, no, but I almost, I almost don't want to, to share that with, with our <laughs> alumni because it's so <laughs> mysterious when you, when you talk about it in such terms. I've actually taken classes into the vault, if they're small classes, but I had an interesting experience right at the end of the term uh, this this past spring, uh, I had a young fellow who said, uh, some of my friends and I, Tom, would love to come by. Can, we're seniors. Can you, if we come by, if we set a time, can you show us the vault? And, um, <laughs> and can you show us a few things in the vault? And I said, sure. Um, we set a time. He, that day he shows up and he he peeks his head in the door and it's about time for them him to be there. And I said, Are, is your group here? And he said, Mr. Camden, this has gotten way out of hand. He said, there are 23, 23 <laughs> of my classmates. And I thought, that's an extraordinarily gratifying yes, to, have, to have 23 seniors who want to come in here. And I said, it's a beautiful spring day. Why are you not in Goshen? You know, um, he said, well, we want to be here. And so they came and, and I took them in the vault. Well, I remember thinking this is a large group and this is not 
really very good idea. And then I'm talking and then I look around and about half the group has disappeared. They're all, oh, they are exploring every nook and cranny in the vault, which of course, it was exciting to them. And I think they're probably still talking. What a gift. Yeah, what a gift that you've given them. I'd like to turn our conversation just a little bit and, and talk about you. It was an honor to join so many of your colleagues last month to celebrate your work at the university and your retirement. Gosh, the stories that were shared really illustrated your dedication and contributions to the university. What are you most proud of? That's a very good question. Uh, you know, that evening was a bit of a blur, but I think I remember saying that I've spent my entire career sort of fighting this uh, urge to, to confess that I'm an academic fraud, that, that I, at best I'm a storyteller, that, and that is what I am. But a, a historian and a storyteller uh, are two different things, and I'm a historian as well. Historians, you, you can tell stories, but you cannot embellish them and make up things and add to them, whatever. Storytelling, you can do all that. But being able to tell stories about the objects that you are describing or that you're sharing, um, it's, it's the stories that make that make this so special. And I think everyone would agree, the, the alumni who are here, the students, when you tell a compelling story about something you're holding in your hands and sharing with them, uh, it adds a, another layer of, of intimacy to it. And um, I've also been told that, you know, it's passion. It's the passion that really does make a difference. And it's a, I think passion is like an infectious disease. Yeah. I mean, truly, yeah, I passion agree. passion yeah. is one of those things that you, if you're passionate and you're excited, your audience is going to get it, and they they might not even know why they're passionate, but they're going to get, they're going to feel that, and they're going to come along with you. So I think, as an academic, as a professor, as an instructor, one of the things you're often most proud of is, and you can say, if I've reached one student. If I've reached one person, if I've touched one person uh, by something I've done or said or shown or shared, then you've been successful. It's an adrenaline rush too. When I'm doing open house for alumni weekend or parents weekend or any of those things, I am rolling for, for a couple of hours and then afterwards I, I'm like a deflated healing balloon. <laughs> but I, I sort of feel like I'm sort of the bridge between the school and the community. Yeah, you I are think. a connector for sure. Yeah, so I think, I think that's, that's been something I'm most proud of. Yeah, well, you, you are a gifted and natural storyteller. And, and it's funny that you say that the, um, the energy lifts in the room. I've, I've witnessed that with mm -hmm. alums who come back and look forward to your presentation. So that is definitely a gift that you have shared. So uh, one more week, do you have one more week left? One more week. Okay. So. What are you most looking forward to as you wrap up your time here? I'm, I'm actually a little apprehensive. I wasn't, I'm still not sure what a retired person is supposed to do. Uh, I'm a very st structured person. So I need, I need to know from day to day what I'm going, my schedule, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm very disciplined in that regard. So I think I'll have to learn to back away and relax some. I'll do, uh, there's all kinds of opportunities for me. I'm, I'm now able, will now be able to um, do more community-based projects 
things that where I can give back to the community. Having grown up here and having come from a family that was, you know, my family's been here for, since 1740, but they were certainly not landed gentry. They were hardworking farm people who were in many cases were very poor. So I, I need to give back to those and, and I need to actually reconnect with some of those folks who, some of my relatives who love me very much, but still don't know what it is that I've done all these years. <laughs> And so maybe I will go. I they need a tour maybe I will vault. go and sit and sit with them and their on their front porch and and sip moonshine with them and and reconnect. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I mean, truly, I will do some traveling. I anticipate that I will be able to to doing what my my wonderful alum friend Harden Marion has done and and take every possible class I can take here. You know, can audit them. Well, you have some catching up to do there. I, I, I don't sure know, do. I don't know how many hundreds he has he, he has uh, he's done, set a record. I believe <laughs> he has set a record. Um, you know that if you find yourself twiddling your thumbs, that uh, our alumni always will welcome you back to Alumni College. <laughs> you mentioned travel. Where are you going? Oh my goodness! Um, you know, I've I've done some some traveling abroad and and and, uh, uh, and had some wonderful experiences. But, through the offices of my wonderful friend Rob Fury, uh, a couple of times, but I've I've suddenly realized that there are parts of America I've never seen. So I anticipate that I'll be able to go to Montana or Wyoming or to to see the the, the West or the Midwest and those places that I've never visited. I've done Southwest, but I also I mean, I'll be going to I'll be going back to Austria in the fall. I'll go there to Vienna. Um, in the late fall with friends friends of mine who have relatives there who are quite well connected. So I'll be able to see Vienna, not as a tourist. So it'll be kind of fun. Sounds like a wonderful trip. Tom, it was great talking with you today. Thank you for taking time out of out of your, your last last few days at WNL. Well, thank you. I hope this podcast will be entertaining at best. You are a fabulous storyteller, so I'm not worried about that. Thank you for our listeners for tuning in. We hope you'll visit our website, wlu.edu slash lifelong, where you'll find our show notes as well as a truly great selection of other WNL lifelong learning opportunities. Take a look, and until next time, let's remain together, not unmindful of the future.